Good morning, pleasure to be speaking to you today. My name is Matt Carvel, one of the elders here uh, at Emmanuel. I particularly want to say hi to you if you're at the Shoreham site or at the Villas or at Marina or Oasis. I'm looking forward to uh, joining with you the week after Easter. So after Easter Sunday, that following week is our week of prayer. We also always begin our terms with a dedicated time to pray together as one church. Really looking forward to joining with you in that week, all the times and dates, where we're praying and when is on the website. So please have a look at that. Whether you're new, whether you've been around us for years, please join us for our week of prayer coming up very soon. It's a pleasure to be bringing uh, some teaching from the Bible to you uh, today as we continue our series. And uh, when we think about uh, looking at the Bible, uh, you could say that, well, the Bible is a book. If you look at uh, sales, of uh, global sales of the book and how much it is read uh, throughout the world, the case could be made and often is that the Bible is the most popular book uh, of all time. Many people say that, but I would not. Uh, For the very reason that large parts of the Bible are very unpopular. And uh, to many different pe- uh, people for uh, differing reasons. And actually, I think that is true for those who are not Christians, who are maybe outside the church, but also the large parts of the Bible that are difficult, even for those who are in the Bible, uh, in the church, and looking at their Bibles. And and uh, we've actually been looking at some of those difficult passages in this Sermon on the Mount. And the fact that you have come back this week to hear some more on this after we talked about lust and adultery last week, I commend you for even being here and uh, hearing some more of what Jesus has to say to us. Uh, But unfortunately, in one sense, uh, it's not good news this morning because this is also, uh, I would would put Jesus' words here that we're about to read in the category of, if we're honest, sometimes we read these words and think, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. And uh, these words are challenging to us all. They're going to be challenging to uh, some in particular because of the content that we'll be addressing uh, today. They are difficult. I want to be sensitive to that, but I do believe we can find hope and encouragement as we look at them. And so we're going to have the the video that will uh, say these words to us from Matthew chapter 5 right now. I think one of the main reasons why these verses and these words are difficult to hear is because the picture of God that it seems to paint. In Jesus just saying these two sentences, if we just look at them on a surface reading, it can seem, wow, where's, where's the grace here? Where's the mercy? Jesus is having a very hard line, it seems, on a, on a topic that is, we all recognize is very difficult. No one chooses to get divorced. No one is a fan of marital breakdown. But then Jesus seems to come in here and, and drive a very hard line on it and doesn't seem to be particularly uh, sympathetic. And so it can be very painful to read uh, or hear these words that he says. And I want to sort of say that up front and, and, and say that that is natu- a natural response. But actually, 
when we get into this passage as we're going to do today, I really believe that we can see something of God that challenges that view that God is unsympathetic or uncaring about people. In all Jesus' ministry, Jesus came into the world to reveal what God is like. And when we just take this passage on the surface level, we can see God doesn't seem very nice. But actually, by getting into what Jesus has said and why he said it and the meaning of his words, I really believe, and my goal today is to preach God to you, and in that way that we will see a God who is just but is also loving and is faithful but also merciful and right and also forgiving all at the same time. And whatever situation you're in, if these verses you would say, that, that, that speaks directly to my situation or not, as we look at what God is like, I, I pray that these words will come to you with, bring hope to you and bring you closer to God. And so that's where we're going. Because on a topic like this, one message of 40 minutes, we're not going to be able to address all the pragmatics and all the questions that arise from this difficult topic and, and, and speak about everything the Bible says uh, about divorce. And so I'm not making it my goal to do that in this message. And I want to encourage you, particularly if this is a topic that speaks directly to your situation because you are going through a divorce or you have been divorced or you have people around you, family members or close friends that are getting divorced, please speak to us. Please speak to your site teams. Please speak to us as elders because hopefully one of the things you'll get from what I'm saying here is this, we need to learn to apply these uh, types of big teaching from the Bible in community and in shared wisdom and be humble and not just say, oh, Jesus said that, I'm going to do this. Let's Talk about this uh, together. That is what we want to do uh, as a church and be there for one another. So I'm going to preach to you what is God like. And the first thing I want to say uh, is God loves what is good. A very simple uh, reading of these two lines, the first thing you would come away with is, well, when it comes to uh, divorce, you could say Jesus is just saying, don't do it. Don't get divorced. And you might think, why is he saying that? Why is that his attitude? It could be because he wants to warn us against the costs of divorce. We have seen this in our um, newspaper headlines in the last few weeks. We saw the biggest, uh, most well costly uh, divorce in history. Uh, Mrs. Mackenzie Bezos uh, agreed a divorce settlement where she would receive at least $35 billion dollars. Is Jesus worried uh, about the cost for us? Well, I don't think that's in his heart specifically. But we kind of read this and think, Jesus is saying, don't get divorced. Is it because he's angry with divorced people? Is it because divorce is a particular sin that's elevated amongst others? And we, is, is God angry with us? Well, I believe the heart of what Jesus is saying and the reason that he's saying don't get divorced and don't treat divorce and marriage lightly is in the sense of a father giving advice to his children. Because Jesus came into the world to show us the father and to help us relate to God as a father. And so these words that he's saying is not different to that. You know, if you're at a wedding a traditional wedding, there'll be a father of the bride who gives his uh, daughter away. 
and the sentiments that he would express to his son-in-law would be one of, you know, don't mess this up because he wants to don't hurt my daughter. I don't want this marriage to be taken lightly and just break up if it's inconvenient to because I care. And God is a father to us, revealed by Jesus to us in that way. And so he's saying that both to brides and to grooms, saying, I care about you. So don't treat this lightly. But also, not just that he cares for individuals and cares for individual marriages, Jesus reveals to us that God also cares deeply about marriage itself. And that's because marriage reflects something of who he is. Sometimes we come to this and think, is God more interested in an institution than he is in people? Well, God is interested in marriage, not because it's an institutional or a legal arrangement, because it is a reflection of him and what he is like. The Bible talks about marriage and says, uh, um, Two people, a man and a woman, come together and become one flesh. So there are two people and they come together as one. And the whole Bible reveals God as a God who is one, but also there is Father and Son and Spirit within God. And because of that, and included in that, is what the Bible also said that God is love. At the heart of God is love because there is a community there of Father, Son, and Spirit loving one another, being united together, but bound together in faithfulness, in love of one another, in serving one another, and honoring one another. And so when we read in Genesis of God saying, let us make man in our image, which what it says, yes, it is saying that individual human beings reflect something of the image of God. But there is a unique thing because God doesn't just make one man. He makes a man and a woman and puts them together in a family unit. And that in itself is expressing something of God. And you know, right now, all of heaven is surrounding God and seeing this wonderful Trinity and seeing this love expressed between Father, Son and Spirit and rejoicing in that, are being in awe of that. And are celebrating a God who is love. And that is something of what God has taken of himself and put into marriage. And not only that, it says it explicitly in the Bible that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is a displaying of God and his character, but also the way he relates to us and his covenant love. Marriage is a picture of God and the gospel. And that is what he wants us to understand is, uh, 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 and have that understanding of marriage. So we think of marriage in the way that he thinks of marriage. Like that. We are to have a high view of marriage in that respect. So if you're married, do you think of your marriage in that way? Do you think the purpose, the primary purpose of my marriage is to display God? And when I undervalue my marriage and when I take my marriage for granted, I'm actually saying something that's untrue of God. And when I make, uh, 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 when I uh, disobey, I break 
my marriage vows, I'm saying something of God that is untrue because God is faithful to his promises. Sometimes if we're honest, we, those of us who are married, we, um, we act as if we are thinking, how much can I take my marriage for granted? How many other things can I prioritize and still keep my marriage together? Friends, if, if you're married you have, and you're a Christian, you've made two covenants in your life. You made a covenant to follow Jesus when you got baptized and you made a covenant on your wedding day. You did not make a covenant with your work or your friendship or your hobbies or even your children. Your marriage needs to come for Jesus first and then your marriage. And God wants us to think of marriage in that way. And so it's challenging for all of us who are married. And even if you're not married, but thinking of getting married or wanting to get married in the future, maybe, do you think of marriage in this way? If someone were to look at your life, those of you are married, would they see that priority? Do you spend time investing in your marriage? Is it at the forefront of your mind, the health of your marriage? Are you working towards making it more beautiful to express the beauty of God himself and the gospel? Don't tell me your marriage is just about a convenience to you or primarily there to meet your needs. If you've entered into marriage, you've entered into something much, much bigger than that. And so for that reason, God loves marriage because it expresses him. But he also wants marriage to be a blessing to us and it is a blessing to us. Yes, God has given marriage and and created marriage in when he created people for our blessing. And those who have been married will have experienced the blessing of marriage. The love that is shared between two people, that companionship, that intimacy, physical relationship, that doing life together and being a team together and having someone to share your life with is a wonderful thing. And it's a blessing to those who are married, but it's also a blessing to children, and it's a blessing to society in general. Because when God made people, he made marriage and put the family unit at the heart of all of society. And we can see this in the Bible. We can also see this played out in life. Statistically speaking, those who are married tend to be healthier, happier, richer, and live longer than those who aren't. If you have married, even if you're not married, but if you have married parents, you're more likely to have have a positive impact on your, as a child, as your self-esteem, your confidence, which leads to academic success and better future prospects because of that stability at home. The statistics bear that out. And marriage also contributes to the prospering of society. That's a big statement to make. But we can see the truth in it when we see what happens in a society that we are living in right now where marriage is increasingly disparaged because we suffer the consequences. And let me give you a few statistics and picture of what's going on in our nation. Not to to condemn those uh, who have got divorced or have, uh, have experienced family breakdown. That's not my point here. My point is saying... When in a society, marriage is no longer the foundational principle of family life, and we think we are wiser than God and, and, and 
dismiss marriage or just see marriage as an option amongst many, we lose something and we all suffer the consequences of that. And because it's what's happening in our nation right now. The UK has the highest level of family instability in the developed world. According to the Marriage Foundation, the Marriage Foundation, as far as I can see, are not a Christian organization or a church-based organization, but are looking at the stats of marriage in our, in our society, in the UK, and seeing this is the trend that's happening and this is the cost that's being incurred. Almost half of teenagers are not living with both parents, and that instability in the home negatively affects children's mental health, academic performance, and future prospects. Yes, Divorce happens, but actually getting married in general keeps people together. Now these, again, these are general trends. I'm not talking about individual situations here. But the statistics would say if a couple is married at the time of their first child being born, 25% will go on to, get, to split up. If they're married when the first child, 25% will end up splitting up. But if a couple is married later, so after they've had started having kids, there are 56%, uh, 56% of those couples end up splitting up. And those who have children but never marry, 69% of those couples end up splitting up. The bottom line is, yes, of course, not all marriages are successful in the sense of end, might end in divorce, but Statistically speaking, most marriages stay together. Most cohabiting couples do not. That is the statistical picture that we are, is going on uh, in our nation right now. Marriage is a good thing because God made it as a good thing and it should be the founding principle in family life. And maybe you say, well, Matt, this has nothing to do with me because I'm not married and maybe I won't uh, get married. If you are not married, but you are a UK taxpayer, you are still paying the cost of family breakdown in this nation. Do you know there is an annual bill to the taxpayer of £48 billion every single year because of family breakdown? And there's not lots of different costs that go into that uh, thing. But one of them, for example, is 60% of lone parents receive housing benefit. So the breakdown of family is causing more cost to the state and society in general because... There are more single uh, parents. And those kind of statistics are not splashed on our uh, newspaper uh, front pages. What we see is messy and costly divorces and people think, oh, well, let's not get divorced. Uh, let's not get married then so we don't end up getting divorced. But there is a family ep epidemic happening in our nation leading to millions of children without fathers because we've lost this high view of marriage and seen marriage as something that's important, not just to individuals, but to society as a whole. And we're suffering the consequence of that in so many different ways. And there is a lie that marriage is wrong and outdated and it served its purpose. There's also a lie that says to us that we can have, we can have it all. And we can have sexual fulfilling relationships and we can have family and all those good things and we don't need to bother with the biblical view of marriage. But the lie is saying you can have it all. And when we look at what actually happens, people are receiving less and less. They're actually setting themselves up for more pain and difficulty because they're 
choosing not to covenant in a marriage relationship. And it's ruining lives and it's ruining society because we think we have better ideas than God's idea because when God made people, he made marriage. And you might say, well, Matt, but what if you're unhappy? What if you're unhappy uh, in your marriage? Is not it better to, to split up? Better to just go separate ways? Well, actually, the statistics speak to that as well. It, say, it would say this, of parents who are unhappy at the time of the birth of their first child, seven in ten stay together. And of those, the majority, 68%, are happy 10 years later. Just 7% remain unhappy. So if you are unhappy in your marriage, marriage is not a promise that your life will go perfectly and it will be happy and enjoyable all the way through. But even this, not even the Bible, even statistic would say, if you stay together and fight for your marriage, you will more than likely get through to a place of a satisfying relationship once again because there is something inherently good in marriage. So if you want, if you're not married, but you want a lasting, healthy, happy, sexually fulfilling relationship, if you want your kids to grow up secure and happy and do well, statistically speaking, the best path for you is to get married. Don't let false mistaken ideas get in and and undermine that. And it's, we can see it in the statistics, but it's not true because of the statistics. It's true because God made it that way. God made marriage and he said, this is the way to do relationships. And so for all those reasons, when we come to passages in the Bible where God is saying, no, don't get divorced. Or even when we read Malachi 2.16, which can be so shocking in one sense, when it can be translated, God hates divorce. We think, Whoa, God hates divorce. Well, actually, I don't think that's much of a surprise. Anyone who's experienced divorce would also say it's horrible. Divorce is horrible. Divorce is an undoing of all these good things. And it is horrible. Anyone who's experienced divorce or been a witness to divorce knows the horribleness of it. No one chooses it from the outset. But for God to approve of divorce and say, no, it's a good thing, it's a fine thing, would be to go against his nature because by his nature, he is a covenant-keeping God. God loves what is good. Secondly, I want to say that God protects the vulnerable. God protects the vulnerable. Let's drill into this passage a little bit more here on this hard line on divorce that Jesus is seeming to take. It sounds harsh, but actually it's compassionate. And let me explain why I say that. In Jesus' time, there was different Jewish teachers who were talking about divorce. Divorce was one of the hotly debated topics at the time that Jesus was speaking. And that's not because there were some people that would say divorce can never happen and some would say, yes, it can be uh, permitted. There was a general consensus that there could be exceptions where a divorce was permitted based on the Old Testament. No, the debate was on the grounds of divorce. What could happen or what would be appropriate for divorce to be a permissible next step? And some were more conservative, but many of these leading teachers would say that a husband could divorce his wife if he spoiled a dish. If, she, if he wasn't happy with his wife and what she had made for dinner, or even 
In one, in one example of saying that a husband could divorce his wife even if he just found someone more attractive and more appealing. That was a popular idea at the time that people were treating marriage very frivolously. And Jesus is speaking against that into that context and saying, don't do that. And not only because they were treating divorce lightly, but because of what would happen in that society to particularly wives who had been divorced. If a husband who has the means of income and uh, owns the family home, if he was to divorce his wife, his wife would be sent out of of their home and either she would have to be taken uh, back uh, by uh, her parents if they were still live family family member but if that wasn't an option she would end up on the street there was no labor market for women women couldn't independently gain employment for themselves well I say that there was one profession that was open to them when a, a woman is left on the streets And so what was happening was that husbands were selfishly divorcing their wives and condemning them to a life of prostitution. And it's in that context that Jesus is saying, don't do do that because God is compassionate to the vulnerable. God loves and has a special love to those who are rejected by others that we can see that right the way through the Bible. And so Jesus is actually, yes, he seems to be driving a hard line, but it's for the protection of people, not for the condemnation of people. Thirdly, God is gracious towards sin. Now, of course, without sin, there would be no divorce. But how should we respond to sin and how does God respond to sin? That's something, a question that comes up when we look at this passage. And there doesn't seem to be much grace here. Is divorce ever permissible? Well, one thing we can say, but there seems to be consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there are conditions that divorce could be uh, permissible. Not that it's good and a right thing, says God, but that he allows it because of sin. Jesus gives one example here. But some have taken this teaching of Jesus and say, well, it's, it's simple. It's, it's textbook. No one should get divorced unless there's sexual unfaithfulness and then it's okay. That would be a simple analysis of what Jesus says here. But I believe a very simple analysis like that to be applied in every circumstance is not helpful and is not what Jesus uh, wants us to take from what he said and to uh, the way he wants us to apply it. And I want to give four reasons for that very quickly. Firstly, we have to take these words in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And you can simplistically look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, Jesus says, do this, do this, right, I'll do this, do this, and this. Okay, in that, if you do, if you act towards the Sermon on the Mount in that way, you may never get divorced, but you'll probably be blind because you've gouged out your eyes and you have several dismemberments because Jesus has already said, cut off body parts if they cause you to sin. And you're probably still on your way to hell because you called someone a fool at some point. Now, that's not to say we can just dismiss what Jesus is saying here, but we have to treat carefully what he's saying and what he's meaning here. And, he's, and, he's, and he's, we have to take into account he wants to get to the heart of the issue. He's not primarily giving practical instructions all the way through. So we have to be careful. Secondly, the context of his original here is, like I've already uh, said, 
He is speaking to people who have treated marriage and divorce very lightly. That doesn't necessarily mean he would speak the same way to everyone in every circumstance who is facing divorce. We also see further on in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to add another uh, situation that would say divorce is permitted, uh, where uh, you have a, a couple and either the husband or the wife has become a Christian. And Paul is speaking into the situation and said, if your spouse who is not a Christian wants to separate from you because you have become a Christian, then you are not bound to them. So if we, if we take Jesus' word too simplistically here, we present, we try and, we're trying to make it simple, but actually we create more problems for ourselves because there is also other, more that the Bible has to say on this topic in other places. And even to say that, well, Jesus says you shouldn't get divorced. And if you get divorced and marry someone else, that is always wrong. And, and, and sometimes we can get into language of saying, well, this, the, the first marriage is the only one God recognizes and they're still married in God's eyes. But let's again be careful with that because even in this passage, Jesus is, yes, he's speaking about a situation that is not right, but he still also calls that second marriage, he says, marries a divorced uh, woman. So he's still referring to that as marriage. as marriage. So when we simplistically say, oh, this is right and this is wrong and that sort of thing, we actually create more problems for ourselves. Now, in saying all those things, I've probably created more questions than I have supplied answers about how we should interpret this passage and how we should apply it to our lives. But I raise those points to say the Bible does not give a textbook answer when it comes to divorce in the sense that there is, there is a formula. This happens, this happens, well, then this happens. I believe God is quite deliberate in that because he wants us to be careful about this massive and holy and sacred issue of marriage and divorce. And he's not wanting us to say, well, this happened, therefore God's on my side and I can get divorced. No, he, wants, he doesn't treat it as a textbook issue because he doesn't treat you as a textbook person and a textbook example. Each marriage, each divorce situation is unique. It's different. There's different things going on there. And so as a, as a church, as, uh, as, as leaders in this church and those seeking to apply these verses and apply everything the Bible says on this topic in a way that honors what Jesus is saying to us, we need to have humility. We need to have a prayerful attitude. I think part of the reason why it's not straightforward and God leaves it not straightforward is to force that in us. To make us humble and for us to get on our knees. And as a, as a church leadership and the eldership here, when we're facing situations with people and that have come to us that are facing marital difficulties and we work this out in community and team together, Thinking, how best do we apply what the Bible says in this circumstance? God doesn't want us to treat this in a formulaic way and, and be, treat it lightly when it's something that God calls holy. So you will ask, you know, how have we applied uh, this teaching about when divorce is permissible or not? And, and yes, okay, we can, we can say that here at Emmanuel we have walked 
the path through with people who have gone through divorce, and maybe that is because there has been sexual unfaithfulness. Maybe there has been a situation similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 7, that a spouse has essentially abandoned uh, their husband or wife, and uh, divorce has happened of that. But also we have walked people through it in terms of uh, their divorce, where there has been abuse. Um, that that is a, 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 a comes into the equation as well. It's not straightforward with that. But sometimes, what the best thing sometimes the best thing is not for someone who is on the receiving end of abuse to to stay physically with someone. And taking this principle of uh, yes, yes, we believe that God wants couples to stay together, but that shouldn't just be um, applied in all circumstances, uh, irregardless of anything else. Yes, we have done that. But let me also say this, because immediately we can say, well, okay, then therefore, you, you know, it's, divorce can be a good thing. But also, let me say this, couples in this church have stayed together and we have seen the gospel power at work in marriages in this church, even when there has been sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus is not saying here, if there's sexual unfaith- unfaithfulness, then get divorced. Actually, we believe God's heart is reconciliation and forgiveness. And wherever possible, that is our goal. Yes, it's not always possible, but that is our goal because we believe in the gospel. We believe in the power of forgiveness. We believe in the power of Jesus to change hearts. And so there's couples in this church who have weathered those storms and come through because of the power of Jesus in their lives. There are couples in this church who have faced issues, tough issues like uh, uh, um, same-sex attraction or addictions or mental health issues or physical health issues, which can all put huge strain and pressure and difficulty within a marriage. And we have seen the power of the gospel come to bear on those marriages and those individuals' lives in a way that has brought reconciliation there and brought us even a strengthening of marriage because God is good, he loves marriage and he wants to be at work. You see, sometimes we can have the idea, sin is the end of the story. That's a sinful lie. Okay, this has happened, therefore that's the end. There's no hope here. We don't believe that. We believe where there's Jesus, there is hope. That grace can cover a whole multitude of sins. And that is what we go for. That's what we want to see. That's what we pray for. And that's our goal because we believe that's what the gospel teaches. Where there is repentance and where there is faith in Jesus, there is hope for any and every situation. That's what we believe. And that's what we have seen in many lives, even in this church. So don't jump to conclusions. The final thing I want to say, I've said God loves what is good. I've said God protects the vulnerable. And I've said God is gracious towards sin. And the power of the gospel can overcome sin in any and every situation. And I also want to end by saying this, God came to save. You know, this week, again, all the newspaper headlines we're talking about divorce, the change in the legal system that is coming to effect, which in effect would uh, create a situation of no-fault divorce. And I'm not going to make a comment on whether that is a bad or a good thing, but I will say this. 
no-fault divorce, there's no such thing. But I will also say this, no-fault marriage, there is no such thing. Because sometimes when we come to this topic of marriage and divorce, we can think in terms of success and failure. That those who have stayed married, well, that's a success. And therefore, if you get divorced, that is failure. But that's not the gospel. Because we believe and we preach in this church that we all need the forgiveness of God. And even if you are married, and if you, even if you are married for many, many years, there is fault in you. And so our attitude should be, when we have couples in this, in this church who have been divorced or anywhere else, we should have humility, recognizing our own need for a savior and for forgiveness in our own lives. And our attitude should be there, but for the grace of God, go I. Not one of us who is married in this church or anywhere has been faithful to the covenant promises that we made on our wedding day. All of us have fallen short. We promised to love and to cherish above everything else, but in our hearts, we have been sinful and selfish and we We're supposed to use our words to build our husband or our wife up and we have used them to take them down. And we've not prized one another the way that we should have done and the way we committed to doing so. And not only that, because this is something that is not just about those who are married. This is something for all of us. Because the story of the Bible is a faithful God and an unfaithful people. (laughs) almost all the way through. There is only one person who has walked this earth who has been faithful to the covenant promises that he made, who has kept them utterly in every way. You know, every person was made for a relationship with God. And we promise to do certain things and we even set standards for ourselves in our daily lives that we fail to meet. And we're all guilty of sin. The wrong things that we do, the wrong things that we say, the wrong things that we think, the wrong attitudes within us. God has called us to be faithful representatives. We're made in his image. But every time we fall short of that, we Say something that's untrue about God. We represent him badly because he is true and faithful and good in every way. And in every way, we have been the opposite in our lives, not least in our marriages. You know, one of the most acrimonious things in a divorce is where the grounds of divorce have to be listed. And if humanity's relationship to God was like a courtroom divorce and you get someone there listing every reason why the divorce has taken place. That's what the the Bible says. If if God were to list our transgressions, list the thing, who could stand to that? Who could even sit there and listen to every way that we have failed God and failed one another? That would be horrible and it is horrible when it happens in a divorce situation. Because the, the, the sin is exposed and say, this is what went wrong. 
Well, God has every right to list that for every single one of us and say this is every reason why God has every right to turn his back and divorce us because we have been unfaithful to him. But the gospel, the amazing work of Jesus is that God does not turn away, but he steps in and comes towards us. That Jesus, the one who was faithful in every way, has taken the fault on himself. No fault. He is the one with no faults, yet takes our fault on himself. He takes the blame for our faults and our wrongdoing. And because of that, there is hope for our lives that we might receive forgiveness. And there is hope for marriages, whatever state they are in. And that is our hope. Not that we will be faithful but that we receive the faithfulness of God and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And that is what he has come to do. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much for sending your son Jesus so that we can receive light and life and forgiveness and love from you. Lord, we've all fallen short, but you give us Jesus graciously as a gift. And Lord, I want to pray for every single one of us, but particularly those that this has touched a very uh, emotive nerve in their life. Lord, that they will receive grace and forgiveness and restoration and even reconciliation from you. In your name we pray. Amen.